Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this not in this world. On Saturday 16th of June, Dave Horsfall taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Dave looked at the topic of the presence of God. Dave is the Associate Director of Leeds School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, presence of God. This is going to be way more chipper. This is like positive. <laughs> We are going to take this, this tour in 55 minutes through Scripture to see God's plan has, has always been the same. This comes back to the, the question over here about eschatology. God's plan has always been for his presence to fill and to, to be across the, the face of the whole earth, it, to, to dwell with his people in the whole of creation. So my overview of the presence of God in Scripture would be Genesis 1, 2, 3, God creates and establishes his temple in creation, a place where he will dwell with his people. Revelation 21 and 22, God um, establishes his temple in creation, a place where he will dwell with his people. Genesis 4 through Revelation 20, God seeks to establish his temple, a place where he will dwell with his people in creation. So to put it another way, God's, God's temple, this picture of God's dwelling place is a big deal in scripture. God's temple is the site where his presence will dwell. It's the site where people will meet with him. It's a place of holiness, the site of, of heaven and earth meeting, the creator and his creation meeting. And what we see is the temple is always meant to Uh, impact beyond itself the holy presence of god that brought blessing was not meant to just be contained in in a tent or a box or a room or even in the person of jesus or even in the church but his presence was meant to be taken across the face of the whole earth so you listen to the prophetic words of habakkuk 2 14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of god as the waters cover the sea There will be an awareness of the glory of God that covers the face of the earth. That is the eschatological, the end times vision of God's presence. Or think of the words in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God may be all in all, but God's presence will dwell across the face of the whole of creation. And we're going to take a journey through scripture to see how the presence of God manifests itself as on this journey from basically a story from presence to presence, as it were. So if you, read, if you just read Genesis 1 and 2 and a bit of 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, you would see that there's so much language in there that's similar. They are heavily linked in Scripture. Both describe the earth as being the place where God's presence is meant to dwell, where heaven and earth meet, as it were. So um, just go to Genesis 1. Have Genesis 1 open in front of you. Um, this is a, a key text in Scripture for, for setting the trajectory of where the story of Scripture is, is going to go. And a key question is, what is God doing in Genesis 1? And God is, God is creating, he creates the, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He makes lights and stars and moons and, uh, and etc. But when we look carefully, what God is really doing is forming and filling He's doing more than creating. God is taking this formless void of the earth, this earth covered in darkness, an uninhabitable place, and God is forming it into an earth that is habitable for the creatures and plants that he then fills creation with. God forms creation and then he fills creation. If you look to Isaiah 45, verse 18, it says, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I mean, we, could, we could spend a day on forming and filling alone, but don't worry, we won't. Um, in Genesis 1, you've got to remember that the writer, 
Scripture is, is written for us, but it's not necessarily written to us. So the writer, as they're writing down Genesis 1, does not have you guys in mind as their primary audience. They are, the writer is, is shaped and formed by the culture and the context that they are living in. Living in. And the, the author of Genesis 1... Uh, or the authors, potentially, is, is an ancient author. And so their understanding of the, the cosmos, the universe, would be different to ours. So it wouldn't have looked like uh, this, if you go to the next one. Um, that kind of picture from space of the Earth, we've really only had that, that kind of image for about 60 years or so. Their understanding would have looked more like this. And um, what you see is there are quite a lot of... Um, differences between how we understand and view the world and how they would have understood it. Um, you see that the, the earth is flat because that's what most people would have thought for most of human history. Uh, you would discern with your eyes that the earth was flat and so if somebody said draw the earth you'd draw it flat. Um, there, are, there are waters above there are waters kind of up there and the waters down here. There are waters below. Because water comes from the sky, it falls on us in the form of rain. You know about this in Manchester. So there, there must be water up there somewhere and it must be held up there somehow. They, they don't, as a geography university student back in the day, they don't get the hydrological cycle, much to their loss. Um, and it, there's water up there and there's snow up there and there's hail up there. There must be somewhere to keep it all. Otherwise, it's just going to be falling down all the time. So there must be some kind of, let's call them storehouses. There must be storehouses for the rain and the snow up in the sky somewhere. And then there must be holes for it to drop through. So when you go to Job 38, uh, God's Saki responds to Job at the end of Job 38. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? That, that would be a, an understanding of if snow comes and hail comes and thunderstorms come, that they must be stored up there somewhere. And if it's all up there, there must be something holding it all back or else it would fall on us the whole time. So if you look at Genesis 1 verse 6... Um, in my Bible, it says, and God said, that, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Has anybody got a different word from vault? Firmament or expanse. Dome. Has anybody got dome? What have you got? Canopy. That's like the rainforest version of the Bible. Sorry, that was a geography joke, which nobody got, or else, it, or else it just wasn't funny. I'll go with the first one. Um, firmament is probably the best word. There's, a, there's something that separates the waters above from the waters below, and it's, it's solid. It's hard, because otherwise the water would just fall through it. So it's up there, and it holds it, holds it back. Um, and there are waters below as well. So when we go to the edge of the land, there's a massive, great, big sea. And it, it's big, and it's very deep. And it seems like it goes on forever and ever. And there's a, there's a chaotic nature to see. It's this endless, um, kind of deep, dangerous place. And so sea throughout scripture is viewed as a place of, of chaos and danger. It's a symbol of danger. Uh, but at the edges of the sea, you must have the foundations of the heavens that hold up the firmament. So there's this big dome that holds the waters back. It's got to land somewhere. So you've got the foundations of the heavens. And beneath your feet, you must have the foundations of the earth because you're not falling through anything. So there must be something solid underneath you. And um, then in the, in the foundations of the earth is Sheol, the place of the dead. Because when somebody dies, what do you do? Well, you bury them in the ground. So all the dead people go into the ground. So they must all be in the ground somewhere being dead. And so that's where dead people go. In summary, what you have in Genesis 1 is a particular cosmological understanding of the world, and God is seen to be forming this world for it to function in a particular, a particular way. Day 1, God makes, God makes light and dark. And in day 4, he, we see the purpose of light and dark is to make day and night. So he, he forms it and he fills it. He forms it in the sense that there's going to be light and there's going to be dark, and then it's filled with... Um, where's day 4... There will be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the, the day from the night. And so he fills it with the lights. Uh, day, day two, God makes the, the sky and the sea. 
sky and the sea, and with a dome or a vault in between them, for the purpose of separating the waters, he forms it, and day five, so it's filled with fishies and birds. And then day three, the waters are gathered and dry ground appears. So the water doesn't go everywhere, it gets separated off, so there's water here and there's ground here, there's forming. So on day six, there's a filling. There is land for the purpose of uh, fruitfulness and vegetation, and it's filled with animals and people and plants. Well, animals and people, plants came earlier. So uh, the, your next slide, I think I've given you loads of verses that you can go and look at to see elsewhere in Scripture this uh, cosmological worldview playing, your, playing itself out, so you can do that at your leisure. But what we see is God, is God is forming and filling this place to be a habitable space, an earth that can bear life. But more than this, what you see is God is forming the earth as a place that he himself is going to dwell in. If you go to Genesis 2, 1 to 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. If you have a God in the ancient Near Eastern world, the God rests in his temple. If God, is, if God is relaxing or chilling, where is he chilling? He's chilling in his temple. Day seven is where God rests. He has orders his creation in such a way that he finds rest in his creation. He has made a dwelling place, and in a moment we'll see where he dwells and how he dwells in creation. But I, let me just push this kind of picture a little bit further to see if there's anything more here that suggests what God is doing is making a, t- a temple where he would dwell. Um, if, you're making, if you walk into a temple, what do you expect to find in a temple? You might expect to find idols in a temple, images of the God who people in that temple worship. So who is the image of God, the idol in the temple of creation? Us. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let him have dominion over fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals, wild animals of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every, every living thing that moves upon the earth. All of humanity is made in the image of the God who has made the cosmos. If the cosmos is a temple, he has placed into the temple his image who bear the likeness of the God that is to be worshipped. And that means, that means all people across the face of the earth, not just Christians, bear the image of God. And all people have been called to this dominion, this dominion over the animals. And they're called to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Humanity as a whole is intrinsically good and intrinsically valuable because they're all made in the image of God to take the rule and reign of God across the face of the earth. We don't do it perfectly, but that is still the mandate for the whole of humanity. Now, if you're in ancient Near Eastern culture and you go into a temple and there's an idol there, you would perform a ceremony to represent that idol having the life of the deity in it, the life of God in it. And you would take the idol, whether it's a wooden idol or a stone idol, and you would, you would breathe into effectively where its mouth would be to symbolise that idol having the life of your deity in it. So what do we see in Genesis 2, chapter 7? Uh, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So more than this lifeless idol being breathed on to symbolise having the breath of God or the life of the deity, here is an actual human who receives the actual life of God into themselves and are animated by that life. And so as we live and as we walk around, we animate the very life that is in God. There is no life apart from God. The life you have is God's life that he has lent to you. You're welcome. And he can take it back if he decides. But that means that the life that we have, we, we are animated by the, the very same life that is, in, that is in the Godhead, as it were, the life that, that is God's. And lastly, we see that God places not just his image in the temple, animated by his life to display himself to the world, 
we also see that he placed priests in the temple. Any good temple has priests in it. Humanity is to minister in God's temple as his priests. And you do need to know a little bit of Hebrew to see this. Uh, In Genesis 2.15, it said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The two phrases are Abad and Samar. And these are words that appear elsewhere in Scripture to refer to the priestly activity in the temple. If you look, there's a few verses, we'll just look at one of them in Numbers. Uh, The priest, they shall keep guard, Samar, over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall keep guard, Samar, uh, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. The, The priests have this role of keeping guard over the temple and the tabernacle as humanity has this role of keeping guard over creation as priests in God's temple. Humanity are God's image bearers, his life bearers, and his priests, which all adds to this language of creation being a temple. But fundamentally, you need God to rest in the temple for it to be a proper temple. And that's what you see in Genesis 3, verse 8. God himself comes and dwells in his cosmic temple with his image bearers. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And then it says the man and the wife hid himself, hid themselves. But all of this kind of pulls together to say, in the beginning, God's intention was I will create a place that I will dwell with my creation, with my image bearers, and we will be in relationship and we will know one another, we will dwell together and we will take my presence across, across the face of the earth. So there's a book by a guy called uh, Greg Beale called the Temple, and, uh, the Temple, the Church and the Mission of God or something like that. Um, and uh, he argues in it that what you see in Eden is the starting base of a global mission for the image bearers to take the image of God across the face of the earth. How do you take the image of God across the face of the earth? Chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The image bearers are given the ability to create more images more image bearers in there to take it and to stretch the, the boundaries of Eden across the face of, of this creation that God has made so that God's rule and dwelling place would stretch across the face of the whole earth. If you now go to Revelation 21 and 22, let's go to 21 verse 1 and let's see if we see anything that's similar. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Why is there no sea? Because sea is chaos. Sea is danger and sea is now gone. Danger and chaos are now gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. God's presence with his people is re-established and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. All disorder and non-order are gone in the new creation. If you go to Isaiah 65, I think you've, I don't know if you've got this on your notes actually, you see the language from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 is similar. And in the middle, the prophetic hope of the future is so similar. Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child and the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered a curse. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruits. There's a permanence. No longer will they build houses and other lives live in them or, plants, or plant and others eat, i.e. exile will be over. 
They won't build a house and then somebody come and sweep it away. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, Genesis 3 curse, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, Genesis 3 curse. For there will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on on all my holy mountain. There's a sense in which enemies are brought to a place of peacefulness. There is peace in the land and rest in the land. The rest that we saw from Genesis 2 that is constantly disobeyed in the Sabbath throughout Scripture, but is constantly sought after. Jesus keeps coming back to the Sabbath as a, uh, something that reflects God's intention in creation. We see it in Isaiah 65, and we see it find its climax in Revelation 21 and 22. The picture of creation is renewed, order restored, death defeated, God present with his people, and blessing being the norm. So God's presence and God's blessing coming and being together. There's rest from warfare and work that leads to fruit and satisfaction. Um, if you quickly go back to Revelation 21, and you go to verse 22, you see the temple language is there again. Verse 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I, the physical temple became a place where God's presence was, but it was, it was symbolically contained there, as it were. Now there is no temple because there is no containing of God's presence. God's presence is across the whole of creation. The city does not need sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The, the temple, God's dwelling place, is the whole of creation. We see the whole of creation is now a place of purity and holiness. There's no shame, there's no hidden thing, there's no darkness. In our glorified bodies, raised from the dead. Uh, I'm going to leave the millennium for your eschatology session at the end of the second year. But this, this, yeah, this, is, this is post-resurrection of the dead. So we are there in our beautiful new bodies. I have hair, beautiful hair. And we are together worshipping the presence of God in a renewed heavens and earth. If you go to Revel uh, Revelation 22, do you have a subheading? Glory of the New Jerusalem. Anything else? Eden restored. Eden restored. Eden restored is a terrible subheading. You should, I would go so far as to say, cross it out of your Bible. Eden restored says this is the message of Scripture. We start in Eden and all things are good and right and perfect. And for some reason we progress and we're not really sure why. But then things go really, really bad. But then Jesus comes and he takes us back. He takes us back to the garden. And it's all right again. And it's all right and good and perfect again. And that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is we are always heading for God's presence filling the whole earth. And Adam and Eve, you are my initial representatives taking the image across the face of the earth. And instead of going directly there, we've, take, we've taken a detour. We've taken a detour into corruption and sin and death. And Christ has come to bring life and bring us back into incorruptibility so that we are restored onto this trajectory to renew or to fill the, the earth with the presence of God as it was always meant to be. It's not Eden restored. The, the two pictures are so different. Eden is a garden, and what we have here is a garden city. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty was its temple. In Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, Whoever put Eden restored needs to be slapped on the hand because they didn't even read the first verse or the second verse. The garden has become a garden city, a place which is fundamentally different and more developed and a home to more people than the garden was. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. We start with Adam and Eve, a single people, a single nation, and we end with the healing of the nations. 
all the people across the face of the earth are brought and find healing in this renewed city where there is a tree of life on both sides of the river. You can, wherever you are in this city, you can receive the life of God. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. The human role of a priest of serving in a temple is still there and it's restored. Once again, we see humanity serving God appropriately in his temple. They will see his face. That's amazing, isn't it? We will see the face of God and his name will be on their foreheads. The, the relationship of image bearing is still there. The name of God will be written on our foreheads. The, the image of God will be fully displayed by who we are, which we see elsewhere in scripture, that we're conformed into the, the image of his son, Jesus, who is fully the image of God. There'll be no more night. There will, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. That sense of reigning and having dominion over the new creation is, is, creation, is Genesis 1 language again. You're to rule and have dominion, and in Revelation 22, it's you will reign forever. Rule and dominion over the new creation. So the beginning and the ends of scripture show God present with all his people in relationship with them, humanity as image bearers, serving God, reigning over creation in a place of purity and holiness with no chaos or disorder or death or mourning or pain or sea. And the rest of scripture is journey from presence to presence. Presence established to presence consummated. The rest of scripture is a journey from being made in the image of God to being conformed into the, into the image of God, into the conformity of his son, Jesus. God's rule and reign embarked on, God's rule and reign being fully established. So the presence of God is nothing short of the predetermined eschatological intention of God found within the Godhead prior to creation. The presence of God being all in all was always the intention God had for his creation, was always the intention he had for you as humanity and me as humanity as well. I will make creation to be a place where my presence dwells and humanity to be the people who will enjoy my presence and be with me. And what you see in the rest of the scripture is the journey towards God filling the earth. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve, symbolic of all the image bearers here, all of humanity, choosing to depart from God's will, failing to trust that God had given them good gifts, desiring independence from him. And the result is this rupture, this rupture in relationship. They're no longer able to be in God's temple. They're no longer able to be in his intimate presence where they see him face to face, where he walks in the cool of the day with them. In that place of blessing, they lose access to the tree of life and so they die. Their work becomes toil. Procreation leading to new image bearers is now filled with pain and damage. The intention of creation is still there. It's still procreation, it's still work, it's still uh, take this earth and fill it and form it, but now it's cursed and it's hard and there's death and corruptibility or corruption involved. But God's desire for his presence to fill the earth is not lost. He continues his plan with new people and new persons. So he chooses Noah in Genesis 9, verses 1 to 3. It said, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. It's the same language as to Adam and to Eve in the first humanity. Go and fill the earth. The fear and dread of all uh, of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on the birds in the sky and every creature that moves along the ground and all, all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. There's a sense in which you fill the earth, but rather than there being a, maybe a healthier dominion, there's now fear and dread in the animals because of how humans will treat them. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just so I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And then in verse 6 it says, Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God created humanity. There's a sense in which the image is still there. It's, it's broken, it's twisted and it's tarred, but it's not taken away. All of humanity still bears the image of God and they're still trying to outwork the, the commission of God to take his presence across the face of the earth but that task is now hampered and made more difficult and then we see Abraham in Genesis 12 the Lord said to Abraham go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth 
will be blessed through you. How do you get blessed? You get blessed by being in the presence of God. Humanity is still on the move. They're going from a land. Abraham is still taking this image into new places. Humanity is still the vehicle through whom God will bring his blessing to the world. And that connection is God's blessing is going to come through God's presence, who is with Abraham, and we see it journeying through the Old Testament with his people. We're going to have to do a kind of highlights of God's presence, as it were. But God's people end in Egypt, in slavery. And God raises up Moses to lead his people out. And he appears to Moses through a burning bush that is not consumed in Exodus 3. And it says, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why is it holy? Because God's presence is in the burning bush. It's temple language again. And they said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. Because of the holiness of God and the the curse of Genesis 3, where the people hid, Moses now hides his face from God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israels out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God's presence promises to go with Moses. And if God's presence goes, success will go as well. And then God rescues his people and he is present by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that guides them and protects them. And we see that in Exodus 13. And then in Exodus 19, after he's brought them through the Red Sea, they come and they worship at the mountain that God had promised. And God brings them to Mount Sinai and God's presence comes and it dwells in a cloud at the top of the temple. And it says in verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, how I saved you by my grace and my action alone. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Again, God, God commissions his people. I brought you to myself. You are called to be a holy people. The holiness of God is not a joke. <laughs> the people have to cleanse themselves and refrain from touching the mountain while God's presence is there. And God says he will take them to the promised land and he will be with them. He'll travel with them in the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and he'll meet them over the the ark, which we see in Exodus 25. And he gives them instructions of how to make this and how the priests are to serve in it. In the end of uh, Exodus 62, God gives instructions um, about observing the Sabbath and his rest. And what you see in the whole of Exodus is God is recreating his presence being with his people. There's going to be a new home that he will dwell in, the tabernacle. There'll be a new way of his people dwelling alongside a holy God. And the result will be rest. God will rest with his people as he rested on the seventh day. And in Exodus 31, 16, 17, it says, the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I like that picture of God coming into his creation and being refreshed by being there. But you see the language, the temple language of creation is seen there. Immediately after, immediately after Exodus 32, we see the people have turned from God once again. Genesis 3 is repeated. There's a sense in which the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is harked back to or repeated time and time and time again throughout Scripture. And Exodus would be a a good sign of where that is being repeated. And God, because of the disobedience of God's people, God says, I'm not going to go with my people anymore. 
God's holiness is, is at stake, his renown amongst the nations, and his people are besmirching his name, which is what we looked at all through the first session. And Moses pleads with him in chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God's presence again is tied to rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. God promises his presence will go with his people and his presence means rest for his people, but they must obey him. There's a distinction that God's presence brings, but it must be met by obedience from the people. God is a holy God who wants his holy presence to fill the earth. If the people claim to have the holy presence of God in their midst, but their actions are unholy, they send out a message to the whole of creation that God does not mind unholiness, that God is happy to dwell with the people who are disobedient and God cannot allow creation to believe that that is the message of God because his whole message to creation is my holy presence will come and dwell and it will make you holy if we fast forward uh, as we saw earlier the people finally come into the promised land they build a temple a permanent home for God and God's glory fills it he is present with them and his presence is meant to be a blessing not just to Israel but to the nations of the world so if Psalm 46 gives a great picture of what this presence means God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The temple is to be a place of life and blessing. Jerusalem has no river, no physical river. God is its river. God is a picture for Jerusalem of this is where your life and your blessing comes from. God is within her. She will not fall. There's a sense of protection. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. God is sovereign over the whole of creation. The Lord Almighty is with her. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. God's presence means peace and rest across the face of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God says, I will be known across the whole face of the earth. Wars will end. Peace will come across the face of the whole earth. And Israel was meant to be a land that displayed that. It was meant to be an extended Eden, as it were. So Eden was a garden. This was now a promised land. But it was meant to display to the nations that the the remit of God's presence was stretching across the face of the earth. And it would mean peace and rest and holiness. This is why Solomon's marriages to multiple women, his idolatrous practices, his amassing of wealth and chariots of war, that's the antithesis of God's presence being with his people. God's presence being there had had so little effect on how they thought and they acted that this disobedience means in Ezekiel 10, it tells us that God says, my glory is going to depart from the temple. It's going to leave Israel. God removes his presence as a judgment on his people because he says, as a holy God, how can I live in a people who constantly tell the world that I am not a holy God, that I am uh, okay with disobedience? But at the end of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, there's a promise that God is going to return and be with his his people. His presence will come back. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them into one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There'll be one king over them. And they will never again be two nations or divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Cleansing and presence, 
holiness and presence is restored when God returns. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I give my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children, their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I have made a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace and rest and the end of warfare. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So who's this Davidic king? Who's the prince? Who's the servant? How does the dwelling place come? Who's the one who comes to make God's people holy? We're at the same question that we ended the end of Chronicles in. We're still longing and hoping for God to come and return to his people. And then Jesus comes and he is the Davidic king and he is also God come in the flesh. If you think of John chapter 1. creation language again in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind so we have in the beginning we have creation language again who's there Jesus is there what does he have he has life and he gives it to all mankind. If you skim down to one fourteen, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek word is literally tabernacled among us. So God has come himself in the person of Jesus to be in the midst of his people. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's presence returned to be with his people, but he's not present in the temple. He is present as humanity in God's creation, no longer inaccessible to humanity, but accessible to who? Not the righteous ones, to the sinners, the ones furthest from God. Jesus takes on human nature, fully fully displaying what the image of God was truly meant to look like. He's the new Adam, born of the dust, in the sense that he's mortal. In relationship with God, filled with the Spirit, the presence of God who brings God's blessing and God's rule. Jesus is new humanity, the beginning of a new creation. He's the first fruits of those who will receive the Holy Spirit. The presence of God. And fascinatingly, we see Jesus reenact creation in John chapter 20. We see Jesus reenact what happens at the beginning to his disciples, to the new people of God who are going to take the Spirit of God and the presence of God to the nations of the world. In John chapter 20, verse 19. You can decide later whether I'm reading too much into this, but I think this is, I personally think this is quite intended. On the evening of the first day, the evening, the cool of the day, the first day of the week, the first day of a new creation, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, the similar fear that Adam and Eve had in Genesis 3, Jesus came and stood amongst them. The presence of God was with them and said, peace be with you. The curse is reversed and blessing and rest is established. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Genesis 2 verse 7 reenacted. The disciples now have the life of God afresh, but not just life that animates a body, the very life of God, the spiritual life of God. If anyone forgives, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The disciples are the sent ones who can bring forgiveness to others. The priestly language of the temple is taken and applied to all the people of God. We are given the ministry of reconciliation to take out into the world. And this giving of the Spirit is not just for the twelve. Jesus promises the presence of God in John 14 and 16 to his disciples. But in Acts 2, we see God's presence poured forth on all believers. At Pentecost and Acts 2, the Spirit of God is is brought out and the temple system is ended. The curtain, when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain is torn from top to bottom, symbolising that access to the Holy of Holies is open. 
Acts 2, the spirit is poured out on all believers. The temple system is no more. We no longer need to come to the temple for sacrifices or for just the Levitical priests in order to make atonement for our sins. God's presence has come with his people because of what Christ has done on the cross. The church is now the temple of God. The people are his dwelling place. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you where you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. The church, oh sorry, God's presence with his people is intimate, but there's a holiness. The church is the place where people can come and meet with God is distinctive. We're a people who say God causes children. He is our father. There is a new identity that we carry. There's a sense in which he's with us. When the church is gathered, God is present with them. When you go into your workplaces, you go with the very presence of God with you. But also the church is a place of holiness and distinction. When people come into the church, if it looks identical to the world, what we proclaim is the God of scriptures makes no difference when people come into our gatherings or uh, around maybe more helpfully or around us in our lives we're meant to display distinction we're meant to stand out because that displays the holiness of the God who's transforming us into his holiness if we don't display any distinction what we proclaim to the world is Yahweh is fine for the church to look identical to everybody else Yeah, yeah. People might look at that and say, well, we're talking about a holy God, that's just like any other band that's going to be playing before 3,000, 5,000 people. Yeah. And I know that that's part of what we have as a problem. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. Have you got any points on that? Well, that's a provocative picture. <laughs> so let's go to that picture. Sorry, go back to that picture. The other way. That, the, that one. Go to that picture that we're already on. Go to the picture that we're already on. Look at that picture. There's something about that which I think says something different to the world. We, we gather and we, we worship the name of Jesus. And I think that presents something different. But if that was all the church is, I think we look too much like a gig and not enough like a distinct people of God. What does it look like for the church to be a place where God dwells, where we are holy, where we're distinct? What does it look like for the presence of God, not not just to be confined to our worship services? And I, I want us to, if you like, pursue the presence of God in our worship services in the sense of when people come to church, I want it to be a place of healing and wholeness and, and blessing and a place where they, they leave closer to God and, and filled up with God's spirit and God's presence more than when they came in. But if that's all it is, then church and the presence of God has been confined to that two-hour slot or an hour and a half slot or an hour and ten minutes, depending on how contextually relevant you're trying to be. (laughs) The church is the presence of God 24-7. So what we do in the rest of life and how we live the rest of life, that's really our display to the world of what it means for the presence of God to be with his church. And if, if the life looks identical then I don't think we display the holiness. Increasingly, I think life for 21st century British church is life on the margins, life in a place of persecution, life in a place of lack, and life in a place where the voice is marginalised but becomes such a distinct community it actually stands out more than it does at the moment. It's a, I think the next generation of the church is a place of cost and sacrifice where we've been the dominant voice, well, we won't be the dominant voice, and where we've shaped uh, the majority of culture, we'll, we'll have to work hard to get our voice heard because naturally it will be dismissed. But actually, that's normal for the church. Where we've been is the abnormal place. The place of being on the edge and your life being at risk or your freedom being at risk, that's more normal for the church, and God tends to work better through the persecuted church than through the church that has 
access all areas, as it were. So I think what does is, what is the presence of God mean? It means church planting. It means taking the presence of God to new places. It means social justice, caring for the poor, the widow, and the alien. That the church viewing humanity as image bearers means we cannot view social justice issues as an optional extra because it's not just something we do in order to preach the gospel. It's something to, we do to establish God's rule and reign across the face of the earth to establish his justice. But it also means evangelism. We can't just do good things. We've got to proclaim the God who we worship. We're to proclaim uh, Yahweh. We're to proclaim Yahweh present in the person of Jesus. It means personal and corporate holiness. That's a real challenge. Personal holiness is hard enough like trying to pursue God and obey him. And I, don't hear me, there is, there is grace. There's confession, there's grace. Corporate holiness is even harder than personal holiness. Corporately, as a church, to try and help one another pursue holiness and to deal together with the unholiness that will be in your midst as a church, graciously and carefully, that's a real challenge. And, and we need the fruits of the Spirit in increasing measure to help us do that well. We're to be uh, diverse in ages, races, sexualities, genders. And we are also to be... Genders. Oh, male and female. Oh, right. I thought you uh, I have so many thoughts on that. Well, I won't go there in four minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, because if we've got, if we really believe He is the Holy God, yeah. who He was then, yeah, now, yeah. And then it, you know, we can go in churches and people are rabbiting through them. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I'm struggling with it. So I agree about the reverence of God. I think the indicator for the reverence of God is not how we do the Sunday, no. it's how we do life. Yes. And so, I, I, in a way, I don't mind people talking through a preach, especially my preachers. <laughs> and I don't mind people nattering during worship, as long as there's an obedient lifestyle behind it. If, if, the, if the church as a whole looks just like the rest of culture, I'm like, that's, that's where we've lost the reverence, rather than just on the Sunday morning. Would probably, that would be my diagnostic tool. So I'm happy with a, a Sunday morning looking. And actually, the, the more people you reach and the more diverse community you reach, the Sunday morning's going to look messier and different. It's not going to look neat and prim. But the lifestyle that the Spirit of God produces in us and our obedience to him, that's, that's where we'll see whether we have reverence for God or not, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I want to see if there's anything else. To sum up, we are, we are in this place where we are God's image bearers who are being restored and conformed into the image of Jesus. We are uh, carriers of the, the life of God in the sense of Genesis 1, kind of presence of God, but we also carriers of the spirit of God. And we are called to live this life of holiness and obedience and distinction carrying the hope of good news for the whole of creation and the whole of humanity that transforms all areas of society while recognising that we are to do that from a place of being on the, on the margins, a place where our voice is heard less and less. When you go back to Samuel through Chronicles, the small nation who trusts Yahweh to bring about great change, that's the church. We're the small people in a nation of competing idols and competing powers, and we are to trust that God uses us, the weak and the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise in order to bring about the, the change that God has promised will happen and has uh, inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus. We are heading towards God's presence filling the whole earth. There's no kind of ifs or buts about where we're going. Our call is joining in with that in obedient, sacrificial service to him and taking his presence across the face of the earth. That would be my conclusion. And we're at half 12. <laughs> Thanks. Let's, let's just do a couple of quick questions.